Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Janice, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you. Great to have you here. Now, in 30 seconds or less, are you able to tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? (laughs) Sure. So my name is Janice Wing. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Food Science at Aarhus University. That's in Denmark. Um, So in my day job, I am a researcher in flavor perception and how we make sense of the world. But um, on my other side, I'm also a, a wine geek. I'm a WSET um, diploma holder. I'm a WSET educator. And um, in my, when I was in university, I was the um, president of the Oxford University Wine Tasting Society. So um, I also come from a competitive blind tasting side, if you will. Yeah, were you an Oxford champion, is that right? Yes, yes. I'm happy to say that while I was on the team, we beat Cambridge three years in a row. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, now, uh, the first one you, you've basically—I was looking through the papers that you that you've published and then that you've sent me, and a few of them are basically the same as a load of paper five questions, anyway. So, that, so my job's pretty easy today in some respects. Um, <laughs> but the, the first one—it uh, was—it's an old paper five question: Is blind tasting relevant? Now, you've got a—you've done some research into this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, take it away. Um, so, yeah, um, coming, so coming from this slightly strange background of doing like, you know, <laughs> university blind tasting competitions and going through all the training, right? Um, we always took it for granted that of course blind tasting works because every year we have to train up a new varsity team and we see clear improvements, but, um, you know, in the media, it, people really like to run stories that's like, oh, you know, wine experts don't actually know anything, um, you know, blind tasting is just a trick. There's there's no, you know, you can't actually get better. So um, kind of encouraged by by this. And um, we wanted to run a, run a study that would show otherwise. And I actually got a research scholarship from the American Association of Wine Economists. Um, they actually funded this study. Um, we basically kept track of how people did over six weeks. Um, during varsity season, varsity training season, um, and we could show, you know, quantitatively, that in fact, you know, people's guesses for country for grape varieties, sorry, did get more accurate. Um, they are evaluations of acid and alcohol also got more accurate. Um, so, so yeah, so that was the first study to show that blind tasting training you actually do get better, and people's answers as a group also got kind of closer to each other. So, you know, everyone who's doing their MW uh, studies and training, don't worry, it does pay off. And um, I also have a a follow-up study that just got published earlier this year, where um, we were looking at does wine training actually make you better at smelling and tasting? So the first study was kind of looking at the cognitive effect of, you know, do you make better guesses? And the second study is, do, you know, does it actually kind of change the way you smell and taste just by practice? And what we showed, even though this was kind of a pilot study, um, we did have a control group together with the group that was undergoing training. 
Um, and we gave them very standardized clinical tests of smell and taste before and after training. And we saw that people actually got better in what's called smell discrimination. And this is a test that is done. Um, usually we get a, a triplet of smells. Um, it's like a triangle test. So two are the same, one is different. You have to say which one is the odd one out and there are 16 pairs. So people did get better at being able to discriminate um, between strange smells. So that's actually, I think, really exciting. And especially with the whole um, you know, COVID situation right now with smell training being something that's coming more and more to the forefront. If we can show that, you know, uh, you know actual serious wine training can actually improve your sense of smell, that's quite encouraging news. So, yeah. So what do you think is going on there? In, from a from a mechanism point of view, is it a neural pathway thing, or do you think there's something physical that you're training um, inside the nose? I mean, I know, I know, that I'm reading smellosophy at the moment, and I know we don't really fully oh, yes, understand yes. how um, have, we don't understand how it's working. It's it's good, eh? I mean, I have to have Google next to me when I'm reading it, but um, <laughs> but uh, but I mean, we don't fully understand how how smell works. But what do you think is going on there, and and how broad an application do you think? Um, that can have obviously for for COVID, but we, what else can we do? And uh, do you think it would incorporate other senses too? That's a, a great question. Um, so I mean, classically, right? You have you have olfactory training with you know capitalized O and capitalized T um, that is being used a lot right now um, for you know post COVID anosmia. And in that case, what people have to do is they get four smells, usually lemon, rose, eucalyptus, and clove. And they're told to smell this for smell each smell for 30 seconds at a time, twice a day for four months. And it's just, you know, kind of rote repetition of smells. And the, the theory there is that it's like a exercising a muscle. So if you are exercising your sense of smell, you're kind of strengthening that, I guess, neural connection, if you will. Um, and, and also the funny thing is, I have read all the papers dealing with olfactory training because I was curious. And the actual demonstration of olfactory training making people smell better is also in the smell discrimination test. So it's kind of like the same as wine training. And again, this ability of smell discrimination, right? Um, I think that's actually quite a cognitive ability because in the standardized test, you're getting strange smells that you're, you don't know what they are. If you smell, three orders in a row and you have to tell which one is different. I think what skill is actually lying behind that is the ability to kind of remember smells in your mind in a way um, that you can then recall later to compare with the next one to say, is this the same or different? And I think wine training is very good at building up that ability to remember smells in the mind because, you know, when we smell a wine, we're literally exposed to so many things. And I think wine training, what it does is that it kind of, it breaks down the smell of a wine into these handles that we can grab onto. And whether these handles are like, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary smells, or whether these handles can be more metaphorical, like, oh, it smells angular around or you know, whatever. I think this wine training, what it does is that we get used to smelling very complex, very different smells all the time. And we're used to thinking about smells analytically. And I think it's that general learning effect that transfers over into being better at smell discrimination. 
Do you think there's a case for starting people younger on this? Not wine training, obviously, but we send, you know, very small kids to the optician. We send them other for, you know, for, uh, for, for sensory um, tests when they're quite young. Do you think there's a, an argument for training people in sensory perception in, from olfaction from quite a young age? And do you think that would help? I think that's a brilliant idea. Um, I I would love <laughs> to develop like a you know a course for for kids to just get to get to know their their senses better. Um, yeah, I I don't know if you've ever read Drops of God, the, the you know, Japanese manga about wine, where the protagonist is basically trained from a young age by his father to be able to discriminate different you know smells, um, both in wine and not in wine. Um, I I definitely have friends who are also wine lovers who have kids and they have you know kind of casually trained their kids to smell different things in the kitchen so I think there's wine lovers have this maybe thought that oh it would be good to start early um and something else and this is going to be quite a maybe controversial statement is um during my time at Oxford I was around there for about four years um and I had to kind of train up a lot of people and I definitely think and this is going to be the controversial part I think there is a cultural element I know this sounds really bad but the cultural element as in someone if you're coming from a cultural background where you're exposed as a child to a lot of smells and tastes and flavors it helps you with wine tasting because you have more of these anchors to grab onto to describe your sensory experience um, versus someone who you know, grew up on a very boring diet, shall we say, and hasn't been exposed to so many flavor, texture, smells. Um, so I think that definitely makes a difference, yeah. Cool. Now this, uh, we met, what was it, just over a year ago uh, with the, the the study you were doing that you just published. Uh, so before we get into that one, there's a, there's a, a lovely uh, leading question. Do wine consumers need wine experts? Oh, I know that you asked Jennifer the same question. <laughs> I did, I did, but you uh, you did a study on whether on wine experts and how they uh, how they appreciate things differently. So, uh, with, with just published. So, uh, yeah, uh, what do you think? Um, you know, that's a really great question um, because a lot of my research does deal with you know how do wine novices and experts uh, perceive the same thing differently this could be you know complexity it could be quality um and i always come from the angle of you know as maybe as as someone who's been educating people in wine i always want to promote wine education and what we used to say at um, OUBTS the oxford society is you know the reason why you should join the society is not so that you can amaze your friends with some party trick of wine tasting, um, but is that you learn to kind of appreciate the wine better if you can, if you know more about it and the knowledge leads to better appreciation and better pleasure. And I think that ultimately, you know, why, why do we drink wine? I, I think of wine as kind of liquid art this is going to sound slightly pretentious um and you know I, I think it's you know why i like wine i also like perfume it's because it's it's like an object of olfactory beauty of course with wine it's not more than just olfactory um but right it's it's this thing that's capable of expressing so much nuance and and interest 
And I think with more education, you learn to kind of appreciate and be able to break down the, the inherent beauty that is in wine. And that's why I think it's valuable. And with our research, you know, as the leading question, we can see that experts are better able to kind of discriminate between wines and, um, you know, consistently recognize um, some of the higher level, um, I guess, descriptors in wine, for example, complexity. So yes, wine, I think wine consumers, uh, novices do need wine experts. Now your uh, Madeira papers open access for everyone, is that right? Yes. Cool, fine. I will put a link in the in the bio. So, yeah, so go and check that out. Have a read. Um, but there's another four, uh, paper five question that led on from this. Fortified wines are diverse in style. Why are they not more popular? Um, now, I think one of my one of my <laughs> my immediate response is because because they're too complex, I think. Um, and now obviously a lot of your research is done on, on complexity. And then you've just done a study on Madeira. What do you how would you respond to that? That's. I mean, I, I really think it's a stylistic thing. Um, and when you're talking about fortified wines, I mean, there's the things that they're so different. I think it's hard to generalize across all the categories. I mean, sure, I think there's, there's some sort of untrendiness to it. Although, you know, dry, dry sherries are really making a comeback and I think they're delicious. But I think if we're talking about port, if we're talking about Madeira, um, if you talk to people about sherry, they're probably thinking of their aunt's like cream sherry and not the, you know, Anrama nice, you know, sherry that <laughs> are so popular nowadays. But in terms of these kind of more, um, say, general or stereotypical um, fortified wines like Madeira or port, I actually think people don't like them because they're sweet. And this is something that we saw in the research paper that you just mentioned, is that consumers novices, not experts, um, associate the sweet flavor with lack of complexity. So I, I, I don't know why or how this got started, but there seems to be a prejudice against sweetness as if somehow people think that, oh, if it tastes sweet, then it's not sophisticated and then it's bad. I, I don't understand this. And, and your paper yeah. was, it was in Denmark and the UK, right? Yes. Um, so I'm based in Denmark, but, you know, I, I went to London last year for my um, diploma graduation and I thought, you know what, that's a perfect time to recruit some experts for my study. <laughs> so most of my experts came from the UK, although we also have some from Denmark, because my um, recruitment criteria was basically everyone who is at least a diploma student, but most of them have finished um, the diploma. And the novices were mostly from Denmark because we just recruited basically students <laughs> from the area. Um, so yeah. it's, it's interesting that they, that's the same in Denmark because in the UK it was, I think, stuff like Blue Nun, people associate sweetness with cheapness. But it's interesting that it's, um, it's not just in the UK, it's, it's in other countries too. And um, I would be careful to generalize kind of across nationalities because to be honest, in both groups, they were quite diverse international people because for the experts, a lot of them came to the UK for the diploma ceremony. So they don't necessarily live in the UK. Um, and a lot of our participants were kind of international graduate students. So they don't you know, necessarily they're not raised in Denmark. But even that said, I would argue that the wine drinking culture in Denmark and the UK are not so different. Um, yeah, if anything, you know, British uh, people tend to like their wine slightly older 
but I think that's probably only for the expert group as well. Sure. Yeah. Now, the, uh, you, the, well, this is the title of one of your paper, uh, but actually it, this might as well be an exam question in and of itself. What does the term complexity mean in the world of wine? Ooh, yes. <laughs> you can go and read all my papers. If that comes so, up in September, I'd love it. <laughs> oh, that would be, I think that would actually be a, a quite a nice MW question. It would, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've got loads of, of, of papers on this. Uh, take this through. The highlights in order what you think the most important points are um and, yes, and some of your results yes i mean com complexity is a very complex topic uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so because first of all um we have to clarify what is meant by by complexity um is it is it chemical or physical complexity you know does does complexity exist in the wine or does complexity exist in the brain of the, the taster and those are very different things um and at least in the all the papers that we've written, we've tended to focus on the on the argument that complexity is in the brain of the drinker, not so much in the wine itself. Because while wine is chemically very complex, um, there's been very little evidence kind of correlating the chemical complexity of the wine to the actual perceived complexity. And you know, because I work in a science group that looks at um, sensory and consumer science, we really care about what is in the mind of the people drinking. So, when you get to you know, when what happens in the in the brain of the drinker, then complexity complexity can also um, you know happen in multiple ways. I think the most standard interpretation of complexity is perceiving multiple flavors, multiple aromas at once. And this is definitely the, the definition of complexity that WSET kind of teaches, is you know, how many different um, aromas can you check off in the SAT? Um, you know, a wine is complex if you can either get uh, flavors or aromas from different you know, primary, secondary, tertiary groups, or if you can have, like a muscat, you can have multiple um, flavors in the same kind of primary group. So that's the kind of WICT interpretation. But what I'm very interested in, in terms of complexity is also what about taking into account this temporal aspect? You know, because for me, a complex wine, it's not like you get hit with everything at once. Rather, there's like a temporal journey that the wine kind of unfolds in the mouth. So I'm going to start to sound like Nick Jackson now. But, you know, so first you have... <laughs> But I really think this temporal element is so important. And we use temporal um, assessments of flavor a lot in sensory, as you, you yourself did. You did the T-Kata test, check, um, temporal check, all that apply, right? Where over time, um, I had you rate how did the wine, what are the flavors of the wine at this moment? And over 120 seconds, you really get this you know, unfolding of the wine. And I think that's actually a really important component of complexity is it's not just at a specific slice in time, how does the wine taste, but how does it unfold? You know, do I get this nice evolution from this, you know, the primary hit to the mid palate evaluation to the final um, finish? And I, I would argue that, especially with the Madeiras, um, it was really interesting because, and, you know, we had people rate the aftertaste of the wine for 90 seconds. And for some of the older wines, there was actually evolution over the 90 seconds, even after you swallowed the wine. And I think that's something that people don't usually pay attention to. So, so there's a temporary element of complexity. And then um, finally, there's also this argument that 
complexity is not really about the number of flavors per se, but it's more about this immediate feeling of like harmony or balance. And I think Chablis is the standard example where when you taste the Chablis, maybe it's that you don't immediately perceive like lots of flavors pulling you towards all sorts of directions. But with Chablis, you get this kind of feeling of a coherent whole. And it's this wholeness that somehow also can signify complexity, even though it's not so easy to pull apart the individual components. Okay, so there's my, there's my spiel. <laughs> so, good. So are you, in uh, one or two of your, your studies, you say there's no good reason to believe that the, the physical or chemical uh, 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 makeup of the wine necessarily uh, correlates to perceived complexity. Uh, did I understand that right? Yes, because, I mean, wine by its nature is a very chemically complex product. Um, you know, even if you, I'm just going to sound snobby now, if you have a $5 wine versus a $500 wine, you know, they're going to be both very com chemically complex beverages. Um, and the difference in their chemical complexity might be much smaller than comparing the cheap wine to water, for example. And I should just say that, you know, I'm not a chemist, that's my husband. So, um, so usually I, I feel very wary of saying anything that's chemical related because I'm sure to be corrected by him later on. Well, we'll have to get your husband on at a later date, I think. But um, so in terms of, is there, are you aware of any sort of studies that have been done where they do some spectrometry to look at specific yes. odorants. Um, I mean, is so could it be just that, that there's a greater uh, greater concentration of, of odorants in more complex wines, or is looking at it that way just just getting it wrong? Um, so in in the field of sensory science, there are definitely studies that looked at the chemical analysis of wine, although not correlating it with complexity per se, but rather correlating it with quality. So there are several papers that I have is in my personal library, um, because I'm also very interested in what wine quality means, um, where people have tried to see, okay, can we take a sensory panel judgment of the wine with the chemical analysis of the wine with what consumer says, and can we try to all you know fit it together? And based on what I have seen, usually because the chemical signature is so complex, when you do the math, what you get are kind of just a few very obvious signatures of um, like, you know, oak, do people like oak or not? And I mean, with that, you might as well just <laughs> use, use, the, use the sensory panel or have someone you know, rate the flavors of the wine. And I mean, that said, um, as the wine ages, it does get more complex or at least as agreed by experts. And we know that as a wine ages, it does develop more flavor characteristics you know, due to oxidation. So in a way, we probably would get more, a more diverse range of chemicals from different groups. And again, I'm you know, saying this, making a face because I'm sure I'm saying something wrong. So I do think there's a more diverse range of chemical classes due to the chemical reactions that happen because of oxidation i will just leave it there <laughs> <laughs> fine fine well let's let's get back to safer ground um, in terms of the the studies that you've done with expertise and also with the training you've done in varsity with wsct and um uh, and elsewhere is are there notable 
approaches from a pedagogy point of view for in terms of wine training that work better than others so we had nick jackson recently with talking about structure um and but you've had various different um trainings and you've also you know um, assessed different expertise and different types of training are there notable benefits or or, or do some seem to play out better than others Oh, that is that is a dangerous question. <laughs> I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Um, because my own education was I, I did WSET level two and level three. Um, and then I kind of got swept up into the world of you know, at Oxford blind tr competitive training. And then I did um, level four after that. Um, so, yeah. I, I don't want yeah let me see how I can, how I can say this diplomatically you don't have to um, be diplomatic it's fine I'll take I'll it's my podcast I'll take the brunt <laughs> <laughs> um so I'm very fond of the way that we teach wine tasting in Oxford because we have a focus on structure <laughs> and um the the of course, the, the point is kind of different, right? Because for WSET is more general one education. The people who go through WSET education very rarely have to do blind tasting, you know, unless they're going on to the MW. Um, whereas in Oxford, the whole point of this training is that we have to go up against Cambridge and taste 12 wines blind. So the, of course, the, the education is targeted a bit differently. Um, but the way we approached things at Oxford was you know, the, the point of tasting the wine is, you know, don't spend so much time fixating on what exactly is the color or what exactly do you smell? Because those things will also change in the glass. And the most important thing to focus on is the structure of the wine. So what is the acid, sugar, alcohol, body? Is there oak? Um, how long is the finish? Because those things in the glass, they will stay the same. Um, and it's good to have something consistent to grab onto uh, when you're in a very stressful situation like the varsity match or you know, the MW exam. Um, and Oxford might have a very, I don't know how useful this is for other people, but you know, we make people memorize things like for different grape varieties from different areas. What is typically the acid? What is typically the alcohol? What is typically the body? Um, we, of course, we also try to remember, you know, what are the typical flavor profiles, but flavor comes second to the structure. And another thing I think that's quite important in wine-based education is, um, you know, when we do a tasting in Oxford, we, we maybe devote five minutes per wine on tasting, and then we devote like at least 10 minutes per wine on the discussion that's afterwards. And I think that's where the pedagogical element actually comes in is after we've had our say flight of six wines, <clears throat> we go back and discuss them one by one. And we'll usually ask someone to give a tasting note. And then we, based on that tasting note, we will discuss, do, do people all agree with what they've said? You know, do we agree that the acid is high? Do we agree that you know, the tenants are ripe with buying or whatever? Um, and we have a discussion to see whether there's consensus. And then we have people taste the wine again. Um, after the blind tasting, because it's the tasting of the wine after the discussion that is really where you can kind of consolidate um, what you first thought with what you next think. And it's also very important to take notes of 
both your primary tasting notes and also after the discussion, where did you, you know, where did it go wrong? And I'm kind of um, geeky in that respect because I have all my wine notes studying from 2014 um, all typed up on my computer. And I used to study them. <laughs> um, and I think that, that, that review process really helps because on an individual level, I, I can kind of see the pattern of, oh, you know, I tend to overestimate, say, for example, I tend to overestimate acid when the alcohol is also high um, because acid and alcohol kind of gives the same kind of feeling in the mouth. So, so things like that, or um, yeah, um, if I want to go and remember, oh, I don't remember what a Madiran tastes like, I can pull up all my notes of all the Madirans I've ever tasted and try to find similarities. So I'm a bit dorky in that respect. And of course, you know, you can't expect people to do that in WSET. But I think this element of review and discussion is actually where the learning happens. And I would argue that maybe this is something that is not um, emphasized enough in WSET. So there we go. Now, uh, you've obviously done quite a lot of cross-modal uh, research. Do you think that wine training could help people appreciate other senses, like music, for instance? And the reason I ask this is uh, that there's been lots of, uh, on Twitter, for instance, there's a lot of wine experts who have very, very poor taste in music. But um, you've got to wonder that how bad would it be <laughs> had they not had the wine training? I don't know, like dire straits, seriously, sort your life out. But, but do you think there's, uh, <laughs> so obviously, obviously so smell and taste are, are really closely related. Um, do you think that wine training can help you perceive other senses or change, uh, you know, the way you perceive other senses too? Yeah, that is a super good question. Cheers. Um, so I would I would argue that wine training probably I, I wonder if wine experts appreciate perfume more. Or or say coffee or or tea. Um, because I would I can certainly see the benefit of, you know, if you're trained to really pay attention to smell, especially smell, I would say, and taste to some degree, then probably you would also be able to you know, appreciate other complex smells like coffee or, or perfume or even chocolate for that matter. Um, so there's actually kind of contradictory evidence to that regard, because on the one hand, I have, I'm sorry, very anecdotal evidence for myself. Um, in my research group, a lot of my PhD students are super into coffee. So, um, you know, I have the, the benefit of whenever, with COVID it's hard, but whenever I do go into the lab, you know, we're not drinking the kind of disgusting coffee they have um, for people. We're, we're making our own pour overs with single origin coffees. Um, and I've also been speaking at the Specialty Coffee Association um, conferences. And so as a wine person, it's really easy for me to get into coffee because I get it, right? Oh, you're describing the, the flavors. Sure, not all the flavors happen in wine, but I'm used to thinking about breaking down the flavors. And, you know, oh, describing acidity. Yes, I can do that, right? So I do feel like wine training helps you appreciate other similar kinds of, of beverages. That said, um, my, my friend and collaborator, Elia Kolchmans, published this paper, I think in 2016 or 17, where he looked at the ability of coffee experts versus wine experts to describe coffee and wine flavors, sorry, aromas. And in that case, what he found was actually more of a discipline-driven silo so that, you know, wine experts are good at describing wine aromas, but not coffee aromas and vice versa. So 
you know, there is contradictory evidence, but I think it also has to do with your personality. Because I would imagine that some people just get really into wine and they're like, if it's not wine, I'm not interested. Whereas other people, if they're more open-minded perhaps, because they have this wine education, they can take it and apply to other things um, like coffee, for example. And, you know, personally, I would love to do do um, tea training because, oh my God, is tea complex and, and interesting. And so I have this general interest in just, let's learn about aroma because it's interesting. Um, to your point about music, <laughs> I don't think that wine training kind of opens up people's um, appreciation of music because the sense of hearing is very rarely used when it comes to wine. Although I do have this study where I had people guess whether the sound of pouring a beverage was from uh, champagne or sparkling water or Prosecco. <laughs> so I think that was probably the only the only time when hearing was actually important in the wine context because the bubbles of champagne, it does sound very different from the bubbles of Prosecco and especially compared to sparkling water. But anyways, um, I remember Richard Hemming had this post maybe two years or three years ago where he was saying how all wine music pairing is stupid and it's pointless and it's just a gimmick um, <laughs> we'll get onto that in a second because it was your phd wasn't it <laughs> so i don't necessarily think that training in you know smell and taste and to some extent texture and touch necessarily gives you an appreciation for say um visual arts or or music because it's different sensor modalities that are being exercised okay so let's talk about your phd and let's talk about um some of the the studies that have been done with with you um with professor spence and, and joe bazinski as well um in terms of music and um the way it changes we appreciate wine because uh, i took part in one of these in 2016 i think it was in brighton at the iccws and we had a load of... oh you were there yeah yes. yeah so i think i've been in a couple of your experiments i think but, um... oh i just didn't do the paper then because we did publish results on that <laughs> oh study. you did oh, okay yeah. cool perfect um <laughs> yeah, yeah well you. yeah I would, I would love that but uh, so so yeah now I'm quite curious about the practical applications of this. So, yes. if if you're running a restaurant, uh, obviously don't play heavy metal. I really like heavy metal, but I would never drink wine in a heavy metal bar, mainly because I don't want to die, but also because you know it's just it's just not quite just not quite right. You know, it's a bit too too intrusive. Are there any real practical applications that people can do in an on trade or a home setting that can you know help their appreciation of wine? Um, I, I think definitely at home, it's a much easier scenario, right? Because I think in an on-trade setting, unless everyone's drinking the same wine, people are going to be drinking different wines at the same time. So then you have to find um, a, a music that kind of fits everyone. And I would argue that the biggest problem that I see with, with restaurants is noise. It's, it's not what music they're playing. It's that it's so, usually there's so much noise and so loud that I find it very distracting and it's difficult to appreciate a wine. And we also have research showing that, you know, white noise can um, decrease your sensitivity to sweetness and also saltiness. So, I mean, I, I think the issue with on-trade is really just noise control, you know. <laughs> Please have less noise and then we can we'll talk about what kind of music. At home it's much easier because you know which wine you're drinking. And at home you can play with the music to, to really observe how the same wine might actually taste really different with different music. Um, and I would argue that Krug is probably the, the one who's really 
spearheaded this because they've had you know crook and music pairings forever and if you scan the the barcode and i'm sorry not the barcode that's too crude for crude. um <laughs> if you type in the ele elegantly printed number on the back of the crude bottle <laughs> into the the krug app then they will tell you of course which of the 200 wines went into the blend but they will also give you music recommendations and they're quite nice although my problem with the krug recommendations is that they just ask musicians to taste the champagne and then say which music they think goes best so i think there it lacks it's more an idiosyncratic artistic practice than actually necessarily researched content but i think the the intent is is fun and i think definitely for to you know if we're thinking of ways to make wine drinking more enjoyable especially at home nowadays um giving people the option of playing with different music could be a very nice way to make the drinking experience more memorable how consistent is it between people? So, like, because I, I love all kinds of music, I particularly love jazz, and I think jazz goes well, really well with a lot of wines, mainly because, mm -hmm. but that's often the, sit the setting I'm in. Like, I mean, I, I wanted to sit down and chill out at home. But uh, are there any, you know, wine and music pairings that work really well, but some, but it, say people hate that genre of music, would it, does, it, does it still work? Yeah, so this is actually kind of complicated. Um, so so there, there, there are two kind of topics here in terms of music and wine. On the one hand, you have which, like matching. So on the one hand, you have which music matches or doesn't match with the wine. Um, and then the topic number two is how music can actually change the flavor perception of the wine. Um, and I think those two, I would like to move, you know, separate them as separate topics. Um, because it's not, if you have a music that matches the wine, it's not that easy to predict how it's going to change the flavor of the wine. On the other, I mean, and on the other hand, and this is what my PhD was really on, um, there are consistent ways in which a certain type of music or a certain type of um, auditory parameter can, can change the perception of, say, acidity or oak. Um, but you might not like it and <laughs> it might not match the wine, but it does make it more acidic, right? So there's just two separate topics. Um, in terms of wine matching, so, you know, are people consistent in matching certain music with certain wines? Um, genre is very personally specific, right? So the easiest way to say is that, yes, um, you will probably think that the music you like would match the wine that you like, because then on that level, you're operating on this you know, emotional matching. And that's probably the easiest one to go with. Um, I have published a paper looking at um, commonalities between music and wine and how they match. And what I found is that the, the parameter that best predicts whether a wine will match or music is this emotional dimension that's called dominance or power. That's probably easier to explain. So if um, a powerful wine will match a powerful music, uh, regardless of, what's, of which genre per se it is in. I hope that makes sense. But I should also counter that by saying just because it's a good match on a theoretical level doesn't mean that it will necessarily taste good if you play the music while drinking the wine. Right. So I think there's like a theoretical exercise and then there's the what happens when you actually drink it. Okay. 
Now, as a few of your studies have talked about, like, so there was the one about the rosé, uh, and, uh, and there's a, a where, um, yeah, so just to, to brief describe, um, what, so the people put some pink dye in white wine, and then you got people to, and people described it more as a rosé, especially if they were not wine educated, right, in, in a nutshell? No, otherwise, especially if they were wine educated. Oh, so yeah, they, experts, experts. Experts were more likely to describe it as a rosé if they... Yes, and this is actually this is this is more this is more consistent with um, say neuroscience research. So I'm really fond of that study actually um, because it, what it demonstrates isn't that experts are more easily fooled, but it demonstrates how the brain works. Sorry, that's it's one of my pet peeves. So you probably have heard of the very classic study that was done um, like in the early 2000s where people dyed a white wine red, and then um, supposedly experts um, assigned red wine aromas to the dyed wine. And that's been used as evidence that, oh, wine experts can't tell red from white. I think you've heard of this, maybe? I have, I have. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of problems with that study because first of all, there were first year enology students, so you can't really tell them, I call them experts. Um, and secondly, the way the studies actually set up, um, the, the test subjects didn't, it wasn't a free choice. Like they couldn't just come up with whatever aromas that came to their mind. So to kind of counter that, I ran this study at a um, wine and brain symposium in, um, in Barcelona a few years ago, where we had three wines. One was white, one was rosé, one was uh, the same white wine that I dyed to match the rosé. And I had people, they could name whatever smell and taste, um, sorry, smell and flavor descriptors they wanted to. So it was a completely free choice. And, and then I did some like linguistic um, their descriptions. And what we found was that the descriptors for both smell and flavor that people use to describe the dyed wine much more closely matched the rosé than the white. And because we did this at a wine conference, we had a lot of wine experts. And the more expertise you had, the more likely you were quote unquote fooled by this illusion. So why is this so? Um, well, this is actually not surprising at all because the, the newest trend in neuroscience to describe how the brain works is this predictive coding model. So, so the principles of the predictive coding model is, um, is that the brain is actually always making predictions about the world before we perceive it and before we react to it. So it's not like we're just uh, you know passively sitting here um, something happens, we perceive it, and then we react to it. Um, it's actually quite the opposite because it's much more efficient if the brain makes a prediction of what's going to happen before it actually happens. And all the brain does is then error correction um, if what actually happens is too different from the expectations. So in the case of this rosé wine, the wine experts, um, they have a lot of prior practice tasting and smelling rosé wines. So it's a lot of associative learning that's going on. They associate that color with specific aromas and specific flavors. So what their brain is doing when they see that color is the brain is saying, oh, I've seen this color before. 
I'm going to make my life easier by already predicting what smells and what tastes I'm going to perceive. Um, and novices don't have this training or practice, so their brains can't make any predictions. Um, and this is why when you have the experts, they see a wine, they look at the color, they're already predicting, oh, I've seen this before, right? So, so I'm going to predict it smells like you know, strawberries and watermelon. And when they actually taste the wine, because the taste is, to be honest, not too, too different from, you know, the actual rosé, um, it's easier for them to just confirm their expectations and write down what they expect. So, you know, in fact, I would argue that the experts are not being fooled. The experts just have more efficient brains. Okay. <laughs> That's, that's I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so I wanted to ask about, uh, again, kind of practical applications. And I know you're interested in VR because I listened to your podcast um, with, I can't remember which one, began with an A. But, um, uh, with John and Agoracast. Yeah, exactly. So now I've had a couple of VR drink experiences um one of them was with oh, yeah so one of them was with ramon bilbao um but they played the wrong VR, <laughs> virtual reality thing they played the wrong video so it was supposed to be a tour of their vineyards and i was just sitting there politely like um rioca's got a lot more volcanoes and inuits and kangaroos than than other <laughs> in the text so, um but yeah then they played me the right one and it was a really <laughs> interesting yeah yeah well i was trying to be polite right but, um but yeah there is but then they played me and it was really interesting going around a tour of it and then the other one i did um was with Hendrix Gin. Now, um, obviously, I've never taken any illegal drugs, obviously, uh, but I am old enough that magic mushrooms were perfectly legal when I was at university. So, so I did a few trips then. Um, and then and it was the, I wouldn't say it was exactly like a psilocybin experience, but it wasn't unlike it either. Like, so they had all the flavors were being played to you, you had this totally immersive sound, and then they had all the flavors were coming up with different colors. Someone was massaging you whilst you were doing it, and then they gave you a martini halfway through. It was amazing. Um, in terms of like either education or marketing or you know just for just for personal enjoyment because now people have vrs in their homes now we can have them you know have augmented reality in terms of dining and cocktails what applications do you see that having for the world of wine um so that's a great question i have definitely noticed because i look for these things um you know youtube now supports 360 videos um, the number of 360 videos of vineyard tours have definitely increased, you know, during the lockdown. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's a coincidence at all, right? Um, so I think people are starting to, to latch on this idea that, you know, when you can't travel to the winery, how do you bring the winery home? And I think um, VR is a really, really good, um, good way to, to experience what it's like inside the winery. Um, at home. The only problem that I think still needs to be reconciled is it's one thing to take a virtual tour of the winery and then you drink the wine at home. Um, I don't know how well it will work if you want to drink the wine while you're wearing the headset. Because I do VR studies where we have people actually drink something, I know it's actually really hard if you have a glass to be able to bring it up to your face because the top of the glass is gonna hit the bottom of the headset. Um, like in the lab, we have to give people straws. That works fine for, you know, like coffee or juice. It doesn't work so well. I don't wanna drink wine from a straw. Um, I think the bottom of a, if you have a small ISO glass, it'll barely fit, but it's still not <laughs> ideal. So I think that's actually probably the first, the, the first challenge to, to overcome if you can. But I think, yeah, with, with VR, it's, a fantastic way to, to learn about a winery. And I would actually argue that for, for people who are studying for wine exams, um, 
I think it would, I mean, personally, it helps me learn and remember a wine if I can also try to remember what the winery looks like or what the vineyard looks like. So I think VR could be a really good study tool. Um, at least if you're the type of person who builds memory by kind of pulling in different uh, information together. So like personally, right, I remember wines much better um, if I have visited the winery because then I can remember the wine, not just based on the flavors, but also on you know who was there, what does the building look like? What does the vineyard actually look like? Not just descriptions. So I think that would actually be really helpful. And I haven't, I'm not aware of any studies being done on this per se, but I'm pretty sure that the wine would also taste better, especially for, um, for a consumer, if they're told the story of the wine beforehand. Because I think wine, it's so much of it, you know, does involve what is the story that you tell around it? Um, how do you make it more meaningful, interesting? And especially for say consumers who hasn't had that much training, it's important to kind of establish the framework in which they perceive the wine. So um, I think VR is a good opportunity for the winery to be able to tell a good story. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time. So just one final question, uh, paper five question. Has science taken away the romance of wine? Ooh, excellent question. Uh, <laughs> I, love it. I can't take credit for that one, but. <laughs> was this an actual question from yeah. paper five? Yeah, this was an exam question about five oh years God. ago. Yeah. Wow, well, I hope I never get that question because I will just spend the whole, whatever, three hours typing that one. Um, that's such a good question. I would say yes and no. And as I learned, that's the proper way to answer an MW paper question, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it's, depends. It's never yes or no. It's also it's always, it, it depends. And, and here's why it's yes and here's why it's no. Okay, so, I mean, I think science has taken away the romance of winemaking to a certain extent, because now we, we can control exactly what happens in the winery or in the vineyard, for example. Um, it's no longer, oh, you know, how did champagne get bubbles? I don't know, it's magic, right? But, but now we know exactly how we can control that. So if, if that's how you define romance or you know, mystique, then sure, science has taken that away because now we know how things happen and we can control. Um, but I think that's not to say that there's no romance left in wine because at the end of the day, there's always um, a story to be told and I think now a lot of the romance maybe lies in the, the soil and the site and, you know, how exactly does the grape taste the way it does. Um, science hasn't been able to answer a lot of those questions. So in a way, there's still um, like a, a mystery there. But I don't think we should stop science for the sake of keeping the mystery, because I also think... Um, there's always going to be more mysteries to be discovered. We'll never know like 100% of everything that happens. Um, and in fact, I would say by understanding the process that happens behind wine more, we're probably able to kind of create more interesting, more nuanced wines. And I think from a tasting perspective, um, the more we can understand how the brain processes, say, flavor, um, I think that the more we can create 
more interesting or you know, so-called romantic or even magical experiences. So for example, if we know how music can influence flavor perception, then we can actually use it to, to design like a sonic experience with a glass of wine where every sip you take is different. And just because we know how it works doesn't make it less you know, interesting or magical, if we use that word. So yeah, so it depends. <laughs> it depends. Cool. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's yeah. the uh, that's a that's a lovely note to to end on. I think um, uh, just because we're coming up to our hour, and yeah, <laughs> I could ask you stuff all day. But um, so yeah, is there, is there anything that you think coming out in terms of research that people should be looking at in the in the very short term? Um, so I'm actually planning to do a VR and wine study. <laughs> so that's perfect. That's <laughs> well, if you need a participant, um, I'll make it a hat trick of studies I've been in for you. <laughs> Yeah, and, and actually we've been I've been doing some some studies together with Ilya Kulchmans, the coffee and wine guy I mentioned earlier, on how people remember wines and what happens with people's mental representations of the wine. Um yeah, so we are actually in fact looking for experts to do this online study where we ask you to, you know, visualize wines you've drunk before and try to describe it in detail. Um yeah, so if any of your listeners might want to do this practice. Um, that would be really meaningful for us because trust me, it's very difficult to recruit experts. Yeah, well, there's <laughs> I don't have the biggest following, but they are a, there is good quality listeners, I think, from a from a wine expert exactly. point of view. You so, know, MW students are yeah. so perfect. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, send me the link and we'll put it in the bio. Yeah, perfect. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Janice. That was amazing. Yeah, no, thank you, Mark. Really yeah.